sometimes it's said that uh, mindfulness of, br- of the body and mindfulness of breathing and meditation in general is the is a way in which you cultivate all the all the virtues and uh, so all the goodness different all the ki- different kinds of goodness that one may have um, practiced in one's life who's come to you know have their parts to play you know bear fruit in the practice of meditation and I think conversely it also has to be said that if you wish to practice meditation then you have to cultivate lots of virtues kinds of virtues This is uh, meditation is uh, kind of focusing on the through the heart, through the mind, so that the qualities of the heart and mind that are are in, are enhanced in a way that one is sometimes more vulnerable because we have when we are focused inwardly we have less external things to depend upon and therefore we really are with our own with our own stuff good and bad weak and strong frail and vulnerable and also sturdy and um, protective that uh, karma is mingled When we consider things in terms of what is unwholesome, so we have to recognize not just obvious things such as uh, malice or or uh, envy or greed or something like that, but also just the where the mind is weak or frail or fragile, easily blows up, whereas it has weak spots, where it easily breaks down, where it runs out. Where a thought or a suggestion will cause it to, to panic. So that in Buddha Dharma, the cultivation of virtues is, is a very wide ranging topic, much more than just um, precepts, for example. And so, so they have to c- recollect the paramita. And these are really highly valued cultivation for uh, for life in Dhamma is the parameter of things that enhance sensitivities and also protect generosity virtuous conduct renunciation discernment Panya discernment, energy, and uh, patience, ability to patiently bear with, not panic, not be in a hurry, not jump to conclusions, such a truthfulness, 
resolution, meditana, loving kindness, metta, and equanimity, upeka. These are these are the list of the ten paramitas, and you know, need to recite them every day, so that they they become familiar familiar references. Renunciation, for example, is a really good thing to cultivate. If you cultivate this in small things, then you'll you'll get that principle to establish itself as one of the ways in which the heart moves, one of the ways in which it operates. Now, this is the beauty of these things. You can be cultivating something, you know, when you're way away from the meditation hall, or way away from the meditation topic, you're cultivating some quality there, then that will be learnt. That will become part of the mind's skill and language. The renunciation, so we have lots of opportunities that in our life here. In a way, it's kind of, you can get a bit lazy with it because it's, it's a sort of set up. So we can just kind of go along and not really cultivate or develop because it's already set up to be fairly much a renunciant life. So, you, you know, you don't necessarily... Just the, but abiding with it certainly brings up in your mind uh, the, the not wishing to do it or wanting to hold on to things, and you have to kind of keep renouncing and letting go back into this, into this form. The renunciation of... of uh, of various kinds of glory and excitement, and not just on an ordinary physical level, but even sort of emotional thrills, or sometimes uh, even Theravada Buddhism is rather sort of dowdy in some ways, kind of drab little brown bird rather than some glorious peacock. Pecks around, talks about being good and eating one meal a day, and you know this kind of thing doesn't. Is grandiose, doesn't have a grandiose fan tail that can spread out and jeweled adornment, sutras, and these, these kind of things are so mind boggling. You know, sometimes the sutras themselves, you kind of think, is that all? You know, the Buddha says, with, with regard to the six sense bases, which are spelled out in elaborate detail, and then you don't follow any desire or aversion. So there's a kind of renunciation where one's, one's, one's appetite for lovely ideas. And so for some time in, the, in our life we find that occasions where renunciation for even deep samadhi, sometimes, well not sometimes, but most of the time actually, there's a you know, feeling comes up that was in some remote hermitage and really get into deep samadhi. And then here it gets kind of chopped with little bells ringing and things to do, even on a retreat. Of course, it's only you only ever renounce an idea. It's the idea of of, of fascinating sutras and the ideas of deep samadhi and so on that you you have to give up that that thing that's pulling you away from the way it is now. So renunciation is a valuable thing like that because it does mean you keep coming back to 
mindfulness now and not following the siren songs, karmic inclinations of if only but and all that. You develop it in little ways, it's humble ways. When I go through the Pindabad line, for example, uh, as I'm the first one through, then I carry my mind this recollection when I look at the food, that what I take, if I take something, that means somebody else won't have it. So if, I, if there's a lots of things, yeah, then I'm, okay, it's plenty. If there's not many things, then I think, if I take that, that means somebody else won't have it. Why should I always have everything? Why should I always have the best or the first or the... No, I won't take it. And just that becomes quite instinctive to see a little thing like that. Try that sometimes. It's the wet way in the mind when you look at you look at the food or drinks which are shared out communally and you can see things that are rather nice or healthy or however you call it appetizing or just right or just what you feel like and think if I have it somebody else won't have it is there enough you know and then we look at it like that is there enough to go around and then consider why you know why should I always have everything why why am I better or more important than anybody else doesn't make sense does it and we could see it like that it's quite easy to to let go of things. But, so, we look at it just wisely rather than from some idea of being a self-sacrificing saint who relinquishes everything for the welfare of a sentient being because then we sort of gorge ourselves on this idea. And sometimes the, you know, the hunger for ideology is far vaster and more compulsive than the hunger for sense objects. The kind of stink of sainthood, they call it. <laughs> Where you desperately want to, you know, be the most virtuous person, you stuff yourself with virtue. This should be very pra- practical. Look at it, not trying to make a big thing out of it. Just, just consider, think. Then what gives you the best feeling? And how can you use anything for some cultivation like that? Anya is uh, discernment, the quality of wisdom is the ability to, to consider, to discriminate. It's a discriminative quality. So it decides this is better than that, or this is in front of that, or this is the appropriate thing at this time, this is the appropriate thing at that time. It's not a tremendously calculating, machinating kind of quality, nor is it just some some sort of, nor is it just a sensitive space. So uh, wisdom actually helps, uh, is is very uh, much lauded quality in his teachings of Gautama, Buddha Gautama, he's a wisdom Buddha. In others, Maitreya is going to be a love Buddha. Gautama is the wisdom Buddha, so it's big on panya, 
and so that is in Theravadi lots and lots of lists which define the differences in this faculty and that faculty and this quality and that quality and how this gives rise to that. It's quite, it's quite refined in its discriminations and its discernment. And so the, so the Panya is very helpful. Um, when we talk a lot about uh, you know, developing sensitivity in our practice, in our life, something we'll hopefully feel is, is skillful, you know, to not be so brutal and so domineering and have these tremendous ego drives, we try to soften up a bit, be a bit more receptive. But then the difficulty with that is you get blown away by all kinds of things. So if you're very, very sensitive, it gets extremely difficult. You're like um, an aspen tree, the leaves are always quivering. It's always trembling in the, in the, in the slightest breeze, it trembles. You can never find any stillness. So you can, in a, terms of retreat, if you're very sensitive, you keep picking up various people's energies and vibes and weather and food and, you know, any kind of thing, and you're feeling blown away by this, that, and the other. And uh, when, uh, so, but Panya is a dis- discernment and discrimination that helps to, to say, look, that's not important, that is important. Be with this now and leave that alone. And it can actually create boundaries around things. Bring things into perspective so things aren't just a kind of mush, a kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of, smear, everything blended in together, you don't know which which is up and which is down anymore. And Panya is that which is, when it's conjoined with mindfulness, becomes this, this great vehicle, Sati Sampajanya, mindfulness, well, Sati, uh, sati Panya, mindfulness wisdom. And so Sati Panya is a kind of, you know, is the enhanced quality of, of mindfulness when mindfulness is really properly cultivated, it's called satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. And this is the, the great tool for insight practice, satipanya. Because in some ways the sati is the sensitizing and panya is the, is the perspective reference discrimination quality. <coughs> so it, it protects the openness of the heart. And in some way, we can consider that panya, uh, in a way, is that which you can cultivate with all the others too, all the other virtues, uh, to be discri- discerning about one's renunciation, so it doesn't become mortification. Be discerning about your sila, so it doesn't become a kind of an endlessly anguishing sc- over scrupulousness. Scrupulousness is considered one of the, a defilement when you get just kind of bogged down, hair-splitting, anguishing over tiny little minutiae of did I do this right, did I say this right, did I look right, did I, you know, am I doing the right thing, am I being respectful enough, am I being you know, clean enough, right enough, bright enough, and you get kind of mind just, just fragments into twittering. So with 
you know, say, so that in Panya is able to kind of keep these things in perspective, you know, too, too fretful about the refined elements of conduct or, you know, getting developing re- renunciation to a degree when it becomes more like punishment and, uh, and self-denial, which is a form of self, of course. And energy, Julia, what energy, what energy is present, body and mind, what, what gives rise to energy? Sometimes, um, you know, we say a group retreat might help to give rise to energy. Sometimes big practicing on your own gives rise to it. Taking up particular forms of practice, the tangas or so, can give rise to kind of chanda and, and energy. Or just uh, be careful about one's, what one eats or how much one eats. So, you know, see, you don't eat enough, you don't get any energy. If you eat too much, you, get, you don't get much energy. It gets used up. How much you sleep. Sleep too much, you lose energy. You don't sleep enough, you lose it. Somewhere so that Banya helps there. Mm. Patience. Patience is a tendency, the trouble with patience, it can be too much too passive. Patience is an excellent gentleness and ability to abide with things, but then, of course, we can be, you know, it can err into a sort of over-passivity if it's not guarded properly. You just kind of resign, you like resign resignation. When patience becomes resignation, well, you know, then it, it it's it's kind of gone off. There's things we can do, things we can do to alter things, things we shouldn't abide with, uh, remedies we should seek rather than just patiently endure illness. And in fact, it might be wiser to or take some medicine or, or do something about it. These are things you, you see everyone has to uh, find their own level, but it's important to, to stay awake to the way these virtues support each other. Such as truthfulness, and truthfulness is, is, is a mature quality. It's sometimes we, when we think of being truthful, often it means it talking about our weaknesses or considering our weaknesses. But uh, So truthfulness can become kind of obsessive confessionals to oneself or to others. When really it can be a bit of an indulgence when it's like that. Such a is, 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 is like realize is a reality. Realization being real, and this also entails a kind of wisdom because it's to get things in perspective so you don't make small things big and big things small. Aditana is something to be wise about. You make resolutions that uh, you're not 
that you're not skillful or that are too too you know you resolve to something you can't accomplish you're very idealistic you make vast resolutions that you end up I think half killing yourself trying to do or or overstraining yourself so that uh, sometimes these things are done from just a kind of idealism or not really been in contact with what's what's appropriate aditana because there's a sort of glory in it too and uh, the, with aditana with resolution and with a kind of uh, zeal that comes with it then there's a certain emotional food that that provides you know I'm really doing something the heroic the warrior the spiritual warrior the spiritual hero the is this kind of the crusader I relate to these kind of mood myself but then sometimes the great spiritual warrior ends up more like Don Quixote (laughs) (laughs) jousting at windmills that actually (laughs) it's only a windmill (laughs) making difficulties out of things that aren't really difficult just for the sake of it I don't want to feel as I was going to do battle with dragons, even when there aren't any. So that if we're not wise about it, you can just getting off on the feeling of being on the on the on the quest and on the path and and so forth. And so you contemplate with, with resolution just the, where it's coming from and what the, what the interest in it is it's skillful or whether it's just uh, something that, that uh, it's, it's a kind of fantasy it's stimulating a certain uh, emotional quality in us or when you get bored and for sure you know, most of us have to make our mistakes and learn about it and the learning is part of the is all is part of the wisdom process Metta is kindness, loving kindness. And again, uh, when kindness just becomes sentiment, or you get kind of locked onto an emotional plane, you can't really, if you're not skillful with it, if you don't see it in the way of Dhamma. So we can get kind of emotionally moving with every butterfly and every bird and every blade of grass and every rabbit tree you're feeling emotionally sensitive to and it mustn't suffer so we can actually find ourselves really overwhelmed by this if we're not careful we don't just kind of overheat our sentimental side and we lose the, the ability to be discerning and to be wise. Upeka can go into an indifference. So there's di- different kinds of upeka that obviously the, the spiritual qualities are more like serenity and the unskillful worldly qualities of indifference. So we can, if we're not wise about it, we can think being equanimous will actually we just can't be bothered. Or we go into a kind of lazy, dull state of, well, who cares? 
doesn't really matter, whatever, you know, which is the indifference rather than equanimity. Equanimity is actually attuned. Certainly, you know, cult- cultivating these virtues in daily life. will vastly enhance the meditation, provided the meditation itself is wise. <laughs> you know, it's satipanya, rather than the, this kind of uh, searching for psychic powers or special states. And probably most of us here, all of us here, are not really interested in such things or thinking in such terms. We're thinking more in terms of liberation or release or understanding or peacefulness or samadhi, something like that. These are the things that we tend to be looking for and concerned with. But, uh, remember, the basic tool is... is Satipanya. And then these other things will arise dependent on it. When wisdom is basis in meditation, just in the practice of meditation itself, begins with the faculty of wise reflection or proper consideration, yoniso manasikara, which means the mind create a working activating into the heart, into the origin. So it's really like an examination of the origin of things. For example, yoni manisikara means as we meditate, when we, when we choose or we pick up a particular meditation object, we say, why? Just know what you're doing. So it qu- it's like it penetrates into the heart of our action. And what, what are the effects of that? So it's this is this is discernment. Why do you do that? Just know. Or if you don't know, then maybe there isn't an answer. But it's just hmm, okay. We're doing this now. What's the results? And uh, and keep keep that faculty going. Sometimes we get. Lost it or either in, caught up in jargon, or we miss the wood for the trees. So we might have quite a uh, you know, peaceful time, but not really learn very much. That is, we might be able to find a way in which we can, say, meditate or absorb ourselves, where, where we feel quite peaceful, but we're not. We are, in fact, in a way, uh, avoiding or not looking at, not dealing with some of the frailties, some of the weaknesses of the mind. So we have to be careful about things like samatha, calming. Obviously, calming is invaluable. And yet, like everything else, the quality of wisdom must be there to find the balance. If we just calm too much, then we can get dull or dreamy. Or miss the point. We, we feel okay because right now we're in a calm state 
and we haven't had a chance to investigate, say, our weakness with regards to 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 speech or to activities or to sexuality or something like that, you know, suddenly so that we feel okay, and then maybe when we leave the retreat or the retreat's over, suddenly we're out of the protective custody of silence and and so forth, and then we get um, we get blasted. I found myself after spent quite a lot of time when I was in Thailand on my own, practicing on my own. It wasn't didn't seem all that rapturous an event in three years, but it certainly was was highly protected. I didn't hardly ever go out of the monastery at all, and there was very little conversation, just the, the passing exchanges and sometimes a conversation with the teacher. And there was very little activity, and there was you were basically in a, in a retreat section of the monastery, no hardly any contact with anybody. So even though it wasn't really serene, it was certainly very well protected in that way. So I didn't really develop much. Mostly my practice is trying to absorb into something, get things going, and just you know get in, absorb and get high, or be able to suppress things, memories, and the and the un, uh, unfortunate karma. But then when I left the, the Thailand, I came back to, to England, then uh, I found myself, perhaps, once the, the, uh, the supposedly godless universe, but I had my doubts, Somehow this kind of put me in a situation where suddenly there was absolutely net zero protection. You know, with my my family, and who were not at all conversant with or interested in either Buddhism or meditation, or monasticism or religion. Um, and then, so naturally, often when one is with one's family, anyway, a lot of old things come up. And there I was not only with my family, but also in the very same house, the same room where I lived uh, as a as a teenager, with all these various personal belongings there, and uh, the things I just left when I when I stopped when travelling, my old records and books, and and uh, then in a situation where nobody knew what meditation was, I was even interested in it. So people were saying, well, you know, would you like to watch the telly or go out for a drink or, you know, no, well, no. What's the matter? (laughs) (laughs) So I I landed in England and uh, so I just, you know, it was quite a long trip. At least 14, 15 hours went Polish airlines Warsaw, and then got something else, some other airplanes. It was quite a long, staggered journey. I landed in England. My brother picked me up. We went back to my brother's house, where my sister-in-law prepared this evening meal for me. So I said, "Well, I, I don't eat evening meals." So that was the first kind of gaffe, as it were. <laughs> was, uh, you know, first sort of looks of horror and. Ugh. You know, equipment all this trouble. 
So then, not only didn't eat, didn't, so don't drink, didn't go down the pub, so didn't really want to watch telly. Ended up playing Scrabble as being the most kind of harmless thing you could possibly do to kind of establish some sense of connection to these you know, family. Scrabble is not forbidden by the Buddha. Not the best thing to be doing, but better than drinking or dancing or or uh, these other things. The next day, they took me out to see it's a knockout, which was which was some happening in the local it's a knockout which is a kind of wild like obstacle course they, they, they set up in local football field you have to kind of jump through hoops and crawl through barrels and swing over things they started watching this it's a knockout in my robes and so I, I'm getting really quite cold then they took me down the pub to uh, because it was the nearest place to get out of the cold. I was standing in this pub with people flinging darts and saying, oh, bloody Mary, would you have gin and tonic, please? And sipping me orange juice. Thinking, oh, what's going on? Couldn't distinctly <laughs> help what happened to rising, falling, noting the thinking <laughs> that I was doing before, you know, this Mahasi side or being very highly conscious of every little intending, lifting the hand, lifting, touching, you know, and some of these people with you know, music blasting out of a jukebox in the middle of a pub. So I went home and I just kind of hid under the bed for two days. It <laughs> 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 long for everything in my practice to completely fall apart. And unfortunately, I kind of had just about enough Yoni Solmani Sekara left to scuttle down to London to see Ajahn Sumato as soon as I possibly found out he was in London and I managed to be able to find out how to get to London and do it and got down there just about saved my skin a place where you know things were a bit more set up for a, for a bhikkhu So we have to be quite careful about uh, you know, realizing that okay, things are fine now. Maybe they're not fine, but you know, <laughs> on the external level, this is a pretty reason- good situation. It may not be the place where you're going to get Niroda Samapati, eighth jhana or anything, but you know, you can stick with this. You're certainly moral, mindful, and encouraged in these ways towards these skills of satipanya, but then recognize that all this is human beings, it might not be this way. You might, you know, in five weeks' time you might find yourself in town doing the shopping for an Anagarika, and then, or if you're a bhikkhu on a train somewhere, or a nun, you're kind of going home to see your mother or something like that. And then so that, you know, you don't, you want to kind of make sure you really Building up your your whole reservoirs of, of, of dharma practice, and probably even in this retreat, you're finding that you can see how because some, in some ways you're much more sensitive now. So you might find that even a you know like a casual conversation might make you feel really giddy for a day, or a, or seeing a newspaper or something, or receiving a phone call can totally shatter everything. 
And so that you know, you see that these things are. What does that mean? Where's your practice at? If that's what it, if that's you know. Panya, sati panya is a quality of um, this, this. We only saw many sankara is the thing that just is able to place the mind in certain. They look at this, attend to this. Don't bother about that. Stay with this. Now you're in this state of mind. This is what you need to be with. Mm-hmm. It helps us to choose the meditation topic. And more than that, it helps us to choose where we go, what we do, what we resort with, and so forth in our, in our daily life. And so, so really exercise it on the re- retreat. You develop the, the knowingness so you don't get... Um, blown away guard the sense faculties and also to pick up things that are skillful sometimes when one's mind is, is grumbling and complaining a lot and it goes like that then it's, it's time to pick up something just if you get too one can get too um, absorbed in oneself too concerned with oneself too obsessed with oneself and then you get kind of crotchety because you get into you know you know we can feel offended by this and you know, so why have to do that and you sort of get a, you can get grumpy and too absorbed into you too sensitive about yourself and then that you know recognize this don't take it as a personal failing. This is it's one of the ways that the mind goes. And then, you know, pick up something. Come on, you know, come out of yourself a bit. Look around you. Take an interest in in this in this sangha life. Pick up, learn your chanting. Pick up that. Learn to look after the fellow summoners. These are these are natural skills that are good for us as well as good for the community. It's also important to learn how to, when you're one person who is highly sensitive to the needs of others, how to be able to restrain that. So that you're not always running around doing everything for everybody. You get like that on a retreat. So you note, notice your karmic tendencies and to develop wisdom around it. In in meditation, you have various kinds of recollections and themes of practice. And just in the formal practice itself, we have. So if we say mindfulness of the body. We're starting to just open up to that. When did you get? And then, when notice when you were getting tense or too tight. This is something to to recognise and take steps to to avoid. Just practice letting go, relaxing. Don't don't hold a posture if you're getting into this kind of tight screwing yourself up to do it. 
know, to release and let go of postures and let go of the fixed views that tend to enhance that. Say, so, you know, you're really good if you sit here for an hour and sit with it. If you're just getting uptight and tense and screwing yourself up, it's not skillful. Or it may be the other way around. You kind of just slump. Keep your eyes open. Cultivate walking meditation. Cultivate sweeping, body sweeping. So you don't just let the mind swim and doze. You give it something to pick up carefully. You don't have to be frantic about it, but definitely a particular object. We can use mindfulness of the breathing. Is a one of the one of the aspects of that connects to all of the four foundations of mindfulness: body, feelings, mind, and dhammas. And so, on this on a very simple level of mindfulness of breathing, it's one of its functions is to is to stop wandering thought. And so, just on a very basic level, you see. Counting the breaths, you know, every time you breathe out, you count one and try to get up to ten and then go down to one again, and up to ten, down to one. That's that's a just a very simple exercise in mindfulness of breathing. There's nothing wrong with being simple. <laughs> that's how I define I do this because quite often, you know, I think a lot or I get lots of things to have to think about. Lots of, you know, things in this monastery and in five other monasteries you know, through the wonder of the telephone and the, even if you don't answer the phone, the fax machine bleeps and they get you in the end. <laughs> so there are all kinds of things to think about. And, and so that, that uh, just the, going back to, um, to doing that is... Simple enough exercise, partly because its, it's simplicity is its beauty. It's a game, you know. It's like a child can count from one to ten. So it's kind of it's nice and humbling. And give, giving up the ideas. Oh well, I just got to be reflect upon the the mood behind the thought, or the kind of movement of intention around it. When basically you just need to stop thinking. And you can't do it, even if these are nicer ideas, but sometimes you just haven't got what it takes to do it. So you have to go through under the simple plodding methods of a five-year-old, which is okay. I can handle that. After 20 years, I finally can handle being five now. (laughs) (laughs) I've had enough, enough humiliation. If, um, but then, if your mental content is something you can get some perspective on, then wisdom, mindfulness wisdom is able to just to to contemplate it. You know, so if it's not just wall to wall, and you are actually being can kind of get some detachment around it, 
then just notice the ending points or the, or the flow of it or the change of it. Now, it's rather like, um, say you're about to, you know, it's like when it la- laughter or sobbing, when, when a child starts sobbing, it kind of has a little, goes in bursts, doesn't it? And you notice that anger comes like that. You kind of, you think of something, you get really blazing angry and it kind of burns out for a little while and then you pick it up again. You get angry again. But he shouldn't have said that. But after all I've done. And this must be the tenth time this month. And I told him not to. And the Buddha said. So it needs to be kind of picked up. So perhaps, you know, when it's like that, it's notice the time when it runs down and try to recognize it does come in in patches and then what, what picks it up again and if we can recognize that we actually pick some pick it up start it again then at that moment we can maybe stop that's rather this can be quite tricky it's rather like when you've got the giggles you're giggling and you know you shouldn't be giggling and then you, you try to stop it so you stop if you think about stopping it, it's not giggling some more because you think it's really funny to be making it so, <laughs> how to stop giggling when you've got the giggles? Or you have to actually get that moment in between one giggle and another, and just really turn your mind onto something like, you know, that is not at all funny, and hold it there until until that a nervous thing dies away, or or if you're or if you are, you know, sobbing or something like that. What it takes to actually stop it by determinedly focusing your mind on something else. And that takes that's takes wisdom, it takes renunciation, it takes resolution, doesn't it? Cultivation of various parameters. But it's certainly it's wisdom that notices and says, Hey, you know, this is wrong, this is not appropriate, or it's not right. You can do something about it, this is what you need to do and, and do it right at this point. You know, do it at the point when it's weakened at the ending. So we need to recognize the endings and the flow of, of phenomena. And that's a very fundamental teaching of mindfulness. And, and for example, mindfulness of breathing, one of, its ver- one of its great qualities is because the breathing comes and goes in this ebbing, flowing, pausing, breaks quite, you know, it doesn't take long for breath to end, you get to a pause. It does make you aware of, of beginnings and endings and spaces, and then that with that, when you've learnt that, then you you kind of you can see everything operates in those terms, though with not the same regularity. But everything has got pauses and spaces in it, and that's where you can, you know, if you're getting caught in something, it's in that moment you can put a very firm resolution in to cut it, to stop going on with it. Because in the middle of it, so often, you know, your mind is de- is deluded. So you don't even think you need to stop. It's all right, or it's like particularly the sensitivity, and it just wants to fl- wants to flow along with you. We don't have to do anything to brace it, like stop, cut it out. No, it's too jarring. And so it's rather like you know, getting up in the morning, isn't it? 
in the sleep state, and then bling, oh, alarm clock, oh God, yeah. bang, shut up. Just wait, lie here for a little bit till I let you know, let the process of waking up, you know, really come to fruition in me. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, it's oh, oh, it's five minutes before the chanting. Quick, robes on, hurry over there. Oh, oh, I'm late. You come in the flurry. <laughs> you ever do that? <laughs> you know, just, just kind of waiting for the energies to rise naturally. Because it's uh, <laughs> But it's funny how incredibly convincing it is. So you, you can do it wrong time after time. At the moment, you're in that sleep state. It's so kind of brutal and even disruptive to one's natural energy processes, to, to wake up, get up. Oh, oh you know, I've taken, upset my samadhi. I just let it kind of happen naturally. <laughs> and so sometimes the, the emotional states or things like that, you know, we, they, they've got this softness to them and we don't want to cut it. It's really, you know, it, it, it seems so wrong. But you've got to notice that. So it really helps if you can notice the breaks when the kind of emotional mood dies down of just a touch or a bit, and you can be clearer about it, about the conversation, which can be very enjoyable, and uh, reading things, or you know, you, you kind of seem so harmless and enjoyable. No, notice the rhythm, the flow, the rhythm of, of perception and mood, and then when it's cooler a bit, just when it's cooled down a bit, and you get to the flat side. Hey, what are you doing? So one of the qualities of mindfulness is it's likened to memory, and then it can it can recollect. So. For example, if you're counting the breath, you have to both be aware of, of this is like this is number four right now. But then so the next breath comes around, there's got to be some kind of trace memory that the last one is four, so this one's five. You know, and so it's got this kind of recollecting back to something that existed before. Which uh is not what uh, absorption feels like. Tranquility, absorption. Just you know, just let go into the now, into the way, the oneness. And we don't not, you know, it's, it's, it seems like a non-dualist state. With no past, no future, just the, the present. But this is fine. But but provided that it's come after. The, cl- the purification process of mindfulness, and there's still enough there to notice when your tranquility is going into dullness, when your sensitivity is going into into a kind of uh, mawkish obsessions, and uh, being too delicate. be able to stop and pick up another meditation object. Mindful, uh, uh, I find, uh, for example, work like getting caught, lot, 
world, worldly concerns or concerns about the monastery or this, that and the other, then recollecting death suddenly, you know, puts things a bit into perspective. So, you know, you could snuff it tonight. Oh, yeah, well, there's not much point hanging on to there's some, you know, the moss, the need to clean the moss off the roof. Tiles have got moss on them, or there's a chip in that wall, I've got to fix it. And these things, what the, who cares, you know? Suddenly, you know, recollecting death, one's own death, death of all things. Very good. Just, right, get on with this now. Get things in perspective. So you have recollect death, uh, the unattractive features of the body and of food. You have the recollections on the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, the things that when you're getting miserable and gloomy or you're getting too caught up in yourself, something that brings you out to, uh, to something more timeless and less personal. The Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. We have anapanasati, which is to help cut off this, this uh, discursive thought processes. We have the Brahma-vihara, metta, loving-kindness, sensitivity to what's, what's beautiful in others, to the, to the kindness, just being able to receive it, first of all, before we can even give it, just, just to look out for it, so that your heart picks up that message and is able to recognize it and cultivate it and abide in it. K- kindness, compassion. You get consider the suffering or be sensitive to the suffering. We don't have to look very far, just the fact of the uh, aging and pain and disease on the ordinary level of human beings, the vulnerability of, of animals, creatures, and uh, without having to go into all the gory details of the international wars and famines that are really quite heartrending, you know, it's time when you actually recognise that is good. puts things in perspective. So these are some of the means, and I haven't really gone into in a lot of detail. They're just themes, I think they're fairly obvious and things we can we can pick up in detail at other times. But primarily the function of wisdom and discrimination is to be able to define, pick up, put down, review, recollect. It's a kind of it's not a quality that, that lingers in anything, it's just an overviewing. Sometimes we find it uncomfortable because it doesn't let us drift too far. But it is is an essential feature of this dispensation of the Buddha and the the vehicle which will guide us always, whatever state we're in, through the soft patches and the rocky patches. (laughs) 